Now, this is a really interesting story. It's not only entertaining, but it's informative as well. And, and even at the end of this, we've got some tips on on different things to do with motorcycle travel and, and packing and things. David and Heidi Winters wanted to do a long motorcycle trip, but they lacked the funds. So they had to start saving cash. Now, some of their ideas for saving and even how they would end up traveling or maybe their perspective on those things are, are sort of a slight departure from the norm in part possibly due to that organic thought process that's driven by the lack of available cash. When you don't have it, but you have a goal and you're really driven towards it, you get creative, you find a way. But the story doesn't stop there because while on their trip, a broken wrist and the difficulties of trying to ride with the broken wrist, you're going to have to listen to find out why they're doing this, would turn out to be a catalyst for an idea that changed their life, the way they live, and quite possibly is one of the most exciting things in their lives right now. Well, of course, that's next to their children. They came after the trip, but before the... Okay, wait a second. I'm, I'm getting way ahead of things here. Are you guys ready to go? Sure. Yeah. Okay, let's start. Tell us who you are. I'm David Winters. I am from Edmonds, Washington. And I'm Heidi Winters, also from Edmonds, Washington. And I raise two kids and work our business on the side. You guys somehow got together and decided to do a trip on a motorcycle. How did you guys get together anyway? Where, where do you guys where do you guys connect? Well, <laughs> okay, so we got to back up the clock like really far to fourth grade. Wow, <laughs> yeah. fourth so, grade, fourth grade, yeah. She, you, you, wow, that is a that's a long time. That's really yeah. backed up. Yeah. Okay, so we'll we'll speed. We'll go fast from from there. But we met in fourth grade. We started dating. Oh yeah, when it starts here, you know things are going to be good. We've got travel, adventure, broken bones that help shape the future, travel tips, and a whole lot more fun coming up. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Before we get going, I want to thank some sponsors that helped bring this episode to you today. One is Best Rest. Best Rest makes the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcycles. It's made in the U.S. and has a lifetime warranty. It's also the distributor for Google Tech filters in North America. The website, www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. And Max BMW Motorcycles that's been outfitting adventure riders like you and I since 2002. They've got loads of parts and accessories online ready to ship to your door. They've got an e-rider newsletter that's free to sign up for and highly recommend it. The website, maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. We're proud to be associated with Green Chili Adventure Gear because they make American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their strapping system. They've got a load of stuff you've got to see. You want tough stuff? They've got it. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. And if you want a chain oiler that just works with no electrical or vacuum connections, the MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure. There's no nozzles that delivers the oil to a felt pad on the swing arm that gets to your chain. You can get more miles from your chain and sprocket, and you don't have to worry about spraying oil on. www.motobreeze.com. There's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Okay, so you know where we started on this. It's David and Heidi Winters. We started with how they met. I, I kind of wanted you to hear that again, though. So let me just rewind this a okay, bit here. So and there we go. You guys somehow got together and decided to do a trip on a motorcycle. How did you guys get together anyway? Where, where do you guys Where do you guys connect? Well, <laughs> okay, so we got to back up the clock like really far to fourth grade. Wow, <laughs> yeah. fourth so, grade. Fourth grade, yeah. She, you, you, wow, that is a that's a long time. That's really yeah. backed up. Yeah. Okay. So we'll we'll speed. We'll go fast from from there. But we met in fourth grade. We started dating when we were twelve. Yeah, um, dating air quotes. Yeah. Right. Went to the movie theater. Um, but we've been together since we 
we're 16. And so we've been married now for 13 years. So we got married when we were 20. So it didn't really work out at first when you started, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you started dating when you were 12. It didn't work out. Clearly there was yeah. something wrong until you were 16. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. There was some awkward growth in there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I was gangly and all my jokes. Was... I was taller. <laughs> <laughs> no, you were never taller than me. <laughs> I'm five wow, that is that is some really deep roots. So married at twenty, uh, did you guys get into traveling when you were younger? <laughs> that was one of the contingencies. I said, if we're getting married, we have to travel because I haven't seen anything. I think I only went on one airplane uh, up to that point. But Heidi had traveled around Europe with her family. Her dad teaches Norwegian, and so I wanted to get out there and I wanted to make sure she still had that in her. Yeah, yeah. So I had been all like all over Europe and gone to Norway several times. And, um, but yeah, so when we got married, that was like part of the plan. Like we're going to be married and travel together so that we can share these memories together forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, David, when did you start riding motorcycles? So I really wanted a motorcycle since I was about five years old. And I can remember (laughs) thinking about it And uh, I had some friends that had dirt bikes, so I would hop on their dirt bikes and just go up and down the driveway. But it wasn't until I was 12 that I got my own dirt bike. And I remember my mom, she, she walked into my room. She was like, Dave, we have something really special to show you. And I heard this motorcycle outside the window and I popped out the window and I looked and my stepdad was there and, uh, and he was just revving the engine. And it was one of those moments where I was about to faint. I just felt like the blood go rushing over my face and <laughs> I was so excited. So yeah, ever since I was 12, I, I was riding. So what did you do when you, when you went outside? Well, I, I was just ecstatic. I was like screaming. I hopped on the bike and I think my stepdad set it up, um, in this way, but it couldn't get out of first gear. Like <laughs> the, the lever, uh, to change gears was stuck. So it hit like the engine and so I was just cruising around in first gear and, um, I think I rode up a tree. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a blast. I mean, it's everything you want. Flames were flying out of the exhaust. I'd put my, <laughs> my friend on the back of the, of the seat and we'd go cruising around the front yard. Wow. The rest is history. I mean, you can just tell with that story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, seriously. But so Heidi, why didn't you get the bug? Your parents didn't obviously present you with a motorcycle in the same way. Yeah. No, not at all. Um, I had no like upbringing with motorcycles at all, but I've known David since we were 12 and that's when he had a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like in high school, David had this little, what was that little bike? It was the the Honda. Yeah. It was a Honda Honda CT90. Yeah. So David would drive that to school. And so I'd like hop on the back of his little Honda CT90 Mm -hmm. and like, just cruise around town. So, I mean, I started riding pillion with David in high school. Basically (laughs) that's my origin story. And I went through like the training course, like I got my endorsement and we bought a motorcycle for me, which might pop up in the later, but, um, but yeah, I pretty much, I'm, the pillion rider, but also that she knows how to ride. Yeah, She's, she's ridden around. Um, it's just, there's a lot to it. And you know, as you see, we, we travel on these motorcycles and we do a lot of long distance and there's a lot of logistics. So if you, if you're not really comfortable on a motorcycle, um, that's kind of difficult. And then for me, I would be looking in the mirror or really focusing on her if we're riding our own bikes and that would take away from my own safety. So, but we've also been just historically like overly practical. And so like mentally to like own two motorcycles. Like what? (laughs) That's ridiculous. Like we could just own one and still have fun and it's half the cost. Like, so yeah, I think also there's something in there about that. So you you decided to travel. Was, was a motorcycle in that when you're talking about traveling or was this just travel? We started out just traveling, backpacking around like in our early twenties. But when we were living in, we, we were living in South Africa on one of these trips and, um, met another American couple, Adam and Chrissy and Mm -hmm. Adam let us borrow Chris Scott's book. Yeah. Uh, Adventure motorcycling handbook. And also Adam had all these overland journals. And so he was exposing me to vehicle travel. And I remember we were, we were sitting in their living room and Adam and Chrissy were talking saying, Oh yeah, well, once we, 
uh, you know, raise the kids. They're about 16, 17. We want to rent or we want to get sidecars and go around the world on these motorcycles. And Heidi and I were blown away. Like, is that a real thing? Do people really do that? And and that's when he handed me that book and he's like, yeah, read it. You have a few months here, like digest this and let me know what you think. So we got back from that trip and we were just like, oh my gosh, it makes perfect sense. Like we love to travel. If you're on a motorcycle, you're in it. You're, you're fully immersed in where you are. We had just come from backpacking around and you're taking public transportation, looking off in the distance at, at beautiful castle, um, and, uh, towns on tops of hills. And you're like, I can't get there. Yeah. I have to have my own vehicle to do that. And we were so practical that we thought, well, you're getting 50 miles per gallon on a motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. We could both fit on that. It's cheap to ship. It's small. <laughs> yeah. We can't afford to ship a vehicle, but we could ship a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where that bug was planted. And yeah, yeah no. we just saved forever. Now, do you have your CT90 at this point or have you um, gotten a different bike? So sadly, we sold the CT90 like a a year and a half ago. ago. Yeah. Oh, really? Uh, You just sold this thing? Yeah, it wasn't too long ago. We had done a lot of moving. Um, I guess it's just a few years ago we had moved down to San Diego and moved back up here. So it was just one of those extra things that we were carrying around with us. And I was working on it so much and we had... um, the, the two little kids that it was, it was too much effort at that time. But no, when we, when we decided like, Oh, we're going to travel on a motorcycle. We got a real motorcycle. Yeah, I got a, a BMW, those Funduro six fifties. And so we, we went two up once we returned from South Africa, we were two up on that motorcycle for one month around the Western States to just test out Adam and Chrissy's idea to see if we could hit, you know, hack it. And we loved it. And so at that time, we were like, we need to do an around the world trip. We need to figure this thing out. Yeah. And so that's that's really where the planning and the saving started. But yeah, so then step one was to get a different bike because that one wasn't cutting it. So so we got the KTM 640 Adventure, which what just do you, like, what do you mean it wasn't cutting it. What was wrong with the Funduro 650? So the the Funduro, it, it had some issues with the carburetor where the Venturi had been bored out and I was getting 25 miles per gallon. So I had like a bad taste in my mouth. Also, I think that the previous owner had wrecked it to some degree where when I would go over a speed bump, the wheel would like twist up into the fork. And so that wasn't too confidence inspiring. And then, um, it was, it was a heavy bike and I wanted to do more off-road riding. So it was more road biased than what I wanted. And so I kept, I was doing some research on advrider.com and came across the KTM 640 adventure and fell in love with it. And I was like, this is the bike. This is what's going to take us around the world. Well, you totally bought it without even telling me. (laughs) (laughs) It was pretty stressful. (laughs) Sometimes you got to do stuff like that. It changed our life. It did. It did. So What about the KTM 640 Adventure made you feel that it was the ultimate travel bike for you for riding two up? I I think a lot of people would look at that and say, I don't see that. Yeah, well, uh, there's a lot of different subtleties with a motorcycle like that or choosing the bike that you want. But what I found is if you are attracted to the bike, if you love the bike, then you're going to take care of it. And all the extra effort you're going to have to put into it, you're not going to mind. You're just going to do it. Um, So that, that was one thing. The other thing was it's been proven with the Paris to car rally race, right? It's like always been in the front until they changed the CC ratings. Um, the other thing is it's, it's carbureted. It's really simple to work on. We, uh, we've heard from other riders that the engines were bulletproof after 2003. Um, so it, overall it was a, it was a really, really good bike. And Chris Scott recommended it in the adventure motorcycle handbook. Uh, <laughs> so I was you know, when, when you said the Dakar, I was going to say th- th- that's not a stock bike. They're running in the Dakar, yeah. but as soon as you said, Chris Scott, okay, I'm with yeah. you. All right. I'm, I'm <laughs> well, it, was a six, it was the 660 yeah. with the, yeah, the rally cam and all that. But the, the 640 has that heritage. Right. So you you decide to get this bike. So when you're talking planning, what sort of planning are you talking? Are you talking a few years here or months? Well, it wasn't even it wasn't really planning. It was just saving. Like we've always just had odd jobs. Um, we yeah, we. Yeah, I was a plumber. I, I was going to become a, a journeyman plumber. And then. And then you were doing upholstery. Yep. 
I did sales work for a commercial upholstery company. I was a personal trainer and a nanny and I worked at a coffee shop, like all just. And Heidi did road construction for a family business. Yeah. So it's, it's all been a bunch of random jobs that, that we've had. So every time we got money, it was just like, or, you know, where you're presented with like, oh, do you want to go out and have a beer? It was like, or would you rather save this money and have a beer in Prague? And then we'd just be like, oh, yeah, we're going to save it. <laughs> so we just like we lived on the tightest budget for two and a half years um, just because we weren't making that much money to begin with. And we wanted to save everything possible. What did and they do for your friends? I think everybody understood it after a while. Uh, we we got sick of the happy hour culture that we were in in Seattle. But we would go out and we would like have a glass yeah, of water. we would have water <laughs> and just hang out. And they knew that we, we had bigger plans. So everybody was cool about it. Uh, so they didn't look at you as being like ultimate cheap or anything. Because I mean, I can just imagine that ha- happening. <laughs> you're there sipping your water and you're thinking, these two are so cheap. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, I that's a fair assessment. That's probably what they were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but really yeah. it's, it's the, the ultimate sacrifice. I mean, you want to do something like this. There's nothing better than, than doing that sort of thing where you're, you're looking and say, okay, every dime. I, I love the, the idea of saying, would you rather have a beer here or have a beer in Prague? I mean, that's a great way to look at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like when we started saving, we were only 22. Like we, nobody our age had money anyways. Everybody yeah. was in school. We weren't in school. We dropped out of college. Because we wanted to avoid debt. Yeah. we. Were. <laughs> and we didn't know exactly what we wanted to do at that moment. We figured traveling will expose more of those interests in us so that we could know what we wanted to pursue once we came back. So when you're ready to go, what are you taking? So we, so this was in 2010, we were 24. So we had the KTM. We had, um, we had made our own Pelican side case luggage mm-hmm. because it was cheap. <laughs> and, um, and then we had like a dry bag roll top bag behind me. Yeah. And then like, and then some tank panniers, tank panniers. So it was really, we packed so light and we'd done a ton of backpacking in the past. So we had all the lightweight gear and, you know, our favorite pastime was just to go to REI and buy the <laughs> smallest, lightest, it's so whatever. Weird. Yeah. To think back. And, yeah. So we like had all this backpacking gear that carried over perfectly because we wanted to be fully self-sustained. But there, yeah. there were certain things that we wanted to add to the motorcycle. And as you probably know, Turatech USA is based in Seattle. And so I would just go in there and just perv out looking at all the parts and touching things and walking around the perimeter of it. And, um, they'd be like, can I talk to you or can I help you? And be like, Oh, I'm just uh, browsing. That's it. Uh, but I'd go in there as much as I could. And eventually I, I built up a relationship and I said, Hey, we're leaving in like two weeks for this round the world motorcycle trip. Is there any way that you guys would be interested in sponsoring us? And at that point, Tom, the the owner of Turatech USA was there and he was like, oh yeah, let's do it. Let, let's get you guys on board. So then we got uh, Turatech um, panniers and a bunch of other parts that we added to the motorcycle. Which um, was so much better than our homemade situation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what were they getting from it? Why, why did they go for it? So we, we were just sending them photos, photos so that they could use it on their blog. I mean, you you got to think back. This was 2010. This is before everybody was trying to get Instagram famous. This is before Instagram. Well, and it's before they had tons of people lined up at their door every morning, knocking on it, right. looking for sponsorship, of course. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. before like the expectations were set so high, I feel like if, if somebody was going to like ask for sponsorship now, you've got to have thousands and thousands of right. followers and this crazy presence. And we're like, oh, yeah, I mean, we could like send you photos of us with like your <laughs> luggage yeah. on our bike. And they were they were yeah super cool about it. And they never really demanded anything from us. They were Ever. just like friends. <laughs> yeah. You know? And like if we needed something like we could email them. Yeah. They said if you needed to get anything from us, tires, parts, um, ship it here. We'll throw some dirt on it, put it in an old box and ship it to you wherever in the world so you won't have to pay customs fees. <laughs> like, okay. I don't, I don't think you should say that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, edit that part out. Right? <laughs> you, you know, it's pretty it's, it's pretty incredible, really. What you did was you went and hung around their store, you took up their time, you spent no money, and you end up walking out with a bunch of gear <laughs> and somebody to help you on your trip. You can't well, beat that. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I mean, we... we 
they didn't give us yeah they didn't anything. they they did give us things and then yeah. other things they gave us at cost, cost at mm. so it wasn't like hey you guys looks like you're going places let me just pile on a bunch of our stuff so we did have to put some skin in the game which um you know it, it makes sense both ways yeah and i was really grateful for that and like we've always kind of had the like while we were on the trip and afterwards it was like should we have been sponsored? Should we have pursued that? Do we want that? And ultimately from other companies, yeah, from yeah. other companies. Cause it's like, Ooh, I want that goodie. Like, should I reach out to them and promote myself and try to get that? And it just never really seemed like an appealing. It's different thing. for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Why didn't you, what, what did you feel that you were, you would give up? You, we, well, you give up a lot of your time. Um, because now you're doing work for agenda. for marketing and yeah. And then you have to go into cities a lot so that you can stay current and upload. You have to be connected to the internet. And we didn't want to have the, the whole point of this motorcycle trip was to get away from any ball and chain that we had. And by adding a sponsorship like that was another ball and chain. Uh, that's why Turatech made so much sense for us. They were, they were just really nice people yeah. and um, they didn't really demand much from us. And we like, we brought a laptop and we kept up a blog that was intended for like family and friends. It's not online anymore. Um, but we didn't have cell phones. We didn't, yeah, yeah, we didn't even bring a phone. What was your, your plan when you're leaving? You've got your bike all loaded up. Where do you fly it to or where do you go to? Yes. Yeah, so we had a big going away party, like in near our home. You didn't and- pay for that, did you? <laughs> I think we did potluck. That's the best way to do any party. Yeah, and then we left, you know, so somebody else cleaned it up. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we took off from Seattle with a group of friends all on their motorcycles. We went down to Hood River, camped out. So that was the first night with friends, and we met up with others down there. It was so much fun. And then we said goodbye, and we headed down to California. We shipped the bike out to New Zealand. We backpacked around China for a month and a half. Then we went into Southeast Asia. Then once the bike got to New Zealand, we flew down there. We did two and a half months in New Zealand. I broke my wrist, uh, scaphoid. And so we went to Sydney, and we were hoping to ride from um, – Sydney all the way out to Perth, but I had to get surgery. So we only spent about one month in Sydney. I met some amazing and it was all people down like there. Doctor's office. Yeah. And one visits. cool thing that I should mention when we were uh, in need of help, uh, we were in New Zealand. I realized that my wrist was broken. I posted up on ADV Rider in the Australian uh, thread and said, Hey, I have this motorcycle. I need help. And we had 20 responses from people saying, you can stay with us. You can stay this weekend. We can pick you up at the airport. We can hold your bike. Like, And then we ended up find, uh, finding one couple that said, you could stay with us the whole time. This guy also has a KTM. Like, We would be excited to have you. So, wow. The, the if, motorcycle community yes. is just incredible. Yes, yeah, exactly. The motorcycle community is instant amazing. Instant family. And like we would tell our family like, oh, yeah, okay, we're going to Sydney and we're going to be staying with this couple for – three weeks. Mm-hmm. We, we met them on the internet and our family's like, well, yeah. okay. And Red again, flag. We, I think we were 25 at that time. So, um, yeah, our parents were like, whatever. I don't, I don't know what you guys are doing. But <laughs> Was there any say. apprehension there? Cause this is, this is one of those things that, you know, you hear people talk about sometimes where you, you arrange to meet somebody and, and actually it doesn't always work out either. We always hear the wonderful stories about, Oh, I met this person and they were great. I've heard other stories where mm-hmm. people get together and things don't, don't quite go together so well. Were you yeah. anticipating any problems? Did you, did that run through your mind as, as you were coming up to it? it? It did. And we figured we had so many other options that, uh, if we were kind of in an awkward place or it just didn't work out, we could shoot over to somebody else's house. Um, but we did couch surf on our round the world trip and we did get into awkward situations, <laughs> but what nothing- do you do? You work out some sort of sign language or something like that, where you say cantaloupe and, and then <laughs> right. the other one knows. Run. Right. No, it's more like I grab my knife and I tell her <laughs> stand behind this person <laughs> and then we, and then we get out of there. <laughs> Oh, it's never been terrible. It's never been terrible. <laughs> yeah. No, most, most people are really cool. Um, some people are awkward and they just want to hear you tell stories. And but, that's fine. Uh, anyway, so I'll get back to the, the trip. So we, yeah, the route. we uh, left Australia, shipped the bike to southern India, to Chennai, and we went up to Bali while the bike was in the water and so that I could heal up. We did five weeks in Bali little bit more Southeast Asia, flew out to Southern India, hopped on the motorcycle, did six weeks up India. We drove through the poorest 
uh, area of India um, up to Calcutta and then to Darjeeling. Then we entered the Himalayas, went into Nepal, and we did an Everest Base Camp trek. And while we were sleeping one night in Kathmandu, just about 200 kilometers away from us, Osama bin Laden was killed. And we were trying to get visas through Pakistan and Iran. To get, so that wasn't going to work. And so we ended up having to create the motorcycle, fly it to Munich. And then we went up to Scandinavia, Eastern Europe, out to Turkey. And after the whole 15 months of actually being on the motorcycle cruising around, we were out of money. We had to go home. So we shipped the bike home and we're back in Seattle. Yeah. So what was it like to ride the bike? How did the bike perform for you? Oh, it uh, it did really well. There was an issue with the master and slave cylinder on the clutch. The, the mineral oil and those Magura clutches just are horrible, uh, corroded away the clear coating. So it was leaking fluid while we'd be riding. So we ended up getting stuck out on a peninsula in the Southern South Island of New Zealand with no clutch. Mm. So I had to just jam it into second gear and, and ride second gear all the way home for like an hour and a half. <laughs> and, uh, and then another time we were in Turkey and the slave cylinder was going out. And so before I would enter a city, I would have to pump up the pressure and it was most likely engine oil that was getting into the slave cylinder, but I would have to pump up my clutch before entering the city so that I could be at the stoplights and then get out of there. And then my clutch would completely die. Well, it seems to be a common problem for them, doesn't it? A lot of people suffer the same issues. Yeah. I mean, I would, that's the downside. I would definitely have a cable clutch if I went again, or if I had the option, but, um, overall in the grand scheme of things, the, you're there for the trip. You're not there for the motorcycle. I think a lot of people get wrapped up in that. They think this motorcycle is the thing and they kind of idolize it instead of saying, I'm going to live on the road and a motorcycle is my means of transportation. And so, um, when you do run into those issues where your bike breaks down, it's a whole nother chapter of your story. And those parts of the story become so vivid in your memory that, um, yeah, it's, it's not a problem. Or for some, they, you know, idolizing the motorcycle and having the motorcycle as your focus may work perfectly well as well. Yeah. yeah, that's true. And because yeah, it's just a different intention. Yeah. And it's, I guess it's different on, on like, because we often talk about here, like, do you consider yourself a motorcyclist or a traveler? And, and, you know, people will have different takes on that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with either one. I mean, if you're a motorcyclist yeah. and motorcycling is your thing and, and traveling is part of your riding experience, hey, there's nothing wrong with that either. Right. And I think that if I was riding solo, I would be way more into the tinkering on the motorcycle. Um, so, yeah, I, I get both sides of it. Heidi, what, what was it like for you riding on the back? Um, it was awesome. Yeah. I am a very comfortable pillion rider. I feel like there's either the people who are like, Oh, I can't do this. Cause I don't have like the control. Like it's stressing me out. Like I'm like the opposite. Like I'm just falling asleep back there <laughs> because I'm just being lulled and it's just so chill. Um, I but, made a custom seat for like, her, by the yeah, way. She, had, she needs to mention that. Yeah. So David, <laughs> one of his odd jobs was doing upholstery, right? So he like made a custom seat. And so I could last longer than he could. You've got a nice comfy seat back there. So you can sit oh, there yeah. and fall asleep and, and bump your head into his. I was like, I, I felt like I was on a throne because I had a, like a soft roll bag behind my back. So I had this nice cushy backrest and then to my sides where the the hard case side panniers. But then on top of that, we had some like little 20 liter, little, backpacks. yeah, 20 liter backpack. So I had like these armrests and I had like my water bladder strapped onto that. <laughs> and yeah. so, yeah, I just sat on a throne and I like kept the guidebook and I would read the guidebook to David in our yeah. intercom as we're like driving through an area. And I had my camera out the whole time taking pictures. Like, so I was the tour guide photographer on the back. You mentioned about, David, you were saying about, you know, you'd have to worry about Heidi uh, on another bike. Not, I'm sure it's not to do with her skill level. It's just the fact that it's a, it's a loved one and you're having to worry. Um, right. that, that is definitely, a, I think, a, a valid concern with it. Not to mention, though, that when you're running two bikes, you basically, you've cut your mileage in half. You've doubled your maintenance. You've doubled your maintenance cost. It really does increase the expense of the trip. Now you're thinking exactly how we were thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Cheap. And like, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, we were, we were bootstrapping everything. Everything. And um, we, we multipurposed everything that we could. And that, I mean, that's been a key theme in 
in our lives. You know, we weren't born into wealth. We're not trust fund kids. And um, I've had somebody say, oh, you went around the world, trust fund baby. And I was like livid. <laughs> so pissed. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so we, we've had to, to work for everything, pick up side jobs. And um, so that 50 miles per gallon made a big difference. But yeah, we've always like always we've just said, like, we're going to work so that we can live. We don't want to live to work. We don't want a job that's going to have that be who we are. We want freedom. Yeah, we wanted to be not financially wealthy, but time wealthy. Yeah. And, and there's a cost to that, uh, obviously. We're going to take a 60, 90 second break here to talk about a couple of sponsors to help bring this episode to you. And I've got some good things to tell you about with that. But when we come back, we're going to talk more about what changed in their life, the big thing that changed in their life. We also got some tips about packing, a bunch of other stuff coming up. Stay with us. A few days ago, I had the pleasure of meeting a listener who actually uh, arranged to come up and meet. We went out for coffee. It was, it was good fun. We stood outside talking about um, the bikes and things like that, and he wanted to check out the IMS pegs that I'm always talking about on here. And uh, he was very interested in the IMS pegs. He's running a pivot peg right now. And we discussed uh, the, the difference with IMS pegs when they make them. When they add the width to the platform, they don't add it to the front of the platform. And why is that important? It's so that it doesn't change the angle that you have to tilt your foot to get your shifter or when you push down on your brake pedal. These small things are so important to quality products. And that's what IMS makes, quality products. Check out what they've got, www.imsproducts.com. Look at the foot pegs because they've got a complete line for us adventure riders. imsproducts.com. And don't forget to mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, for people in North America, spring is right around the corner and you're going to be looking for destinations to ride to. I'm going to give you one. Grab a pen. It's in Beaverdale, British Columbia on Highway 33. It's called the Red Rock Garage. This is a place that motorcyclists love to go. They say it's a small coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. And that's why they're on this show. They've got a and b a camping area, and they are surrounded with amazing back roads and trails. Really incredible place to ride. Um, and, uh, and fairly close to the, the U.S. border as well. So it is the place to go. Patch it into your trip wherever you're going. Drop in, check it out, stay overnight, and let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. They've got a great website too, by the way, redrockgarage.ca. Now, it was on this trip that you came up with the idea for the throttle lock? That is where we got the idea. I had a bar-end-style throttle lock, and I would, um, I'd be cruising at... 70 miles an hour and I'd now have to turn it on. And so I'd be working my pinky to try to turn this thing on. That's, that's the little knob on the end that you, you rotate. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, I'm not going to discredit anybody's invention. It's awesome. It's a very novel idea and, um, they worked hard to make those, but anyways, it was difficult for me to use. And then anytime I would turn it off, you have to pull the clutch in and then roll that thing off really quick and then get back up to speed. So there's a lot of like herky jerky action while you're on the road and Heidi, her helmet would hit the back of my helmet almost every time that I would try to disengage that thing. Because I'm just relaxing. I can't anticipate yeah. these things. <laughs> yeah, because I was under the impression that, oh, yeah, as you accelerate, you hold on to it and then it'll hold your cruise. But when you're on the road, you realize nobody accelerates into a cruise in first gear. <laughs> you know, you're already going 70 miles an hour. You need to turn it on. So I kept looking at that spot on the throttle tube. And thinking, why is there not just like a push button throttle lock that can go right here, thumb activated? It's way more intuitive. Um, and so while we were in New Zealand with my broken wrist, right, because I'm holding onto this throttle with a broken wrist, I started um, sketching out a, a throttle lock solution. And that's really when it started back in 2010. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I looked at your, the throttle lock. It's It looks very intricate. Um, it looks like there's a lot of parts to it, but you're not an engineer. I, well, Jim, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> an, in, an engineer is an engineer, somebody who's actually engineered something or somebody who has a degree proving that they could stand four years in a college. Mm, and yeah. then <laughs> now we're, now we're getting into Buddha. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, we always laugh cause we get that question a yeah. lot and it's just like, well, I engineered something. 
doesn't that make me an engineer? Right. Yeah. So, but, and I was, I was aware of that. So once we did, um, launch our Kickstarter and, uh, actually before we launched the Kickstarter, I, I was working with a mechanical engineer to make sure that everything was legit, all the tolerances, all the metal, everything was exactly what we needed it to be. So a, a real <laughs> engineer did help me on that. <laughs> so what's what's so different about your idea, though? I mean, you know, the idea of a throttle lock, I don't know, I, you, you, there's, a, there's a bunch of different um, things that people have come up with over the years I mean, before things started to get manufactured for this purpose to hold your throttle in place, elastic bands and all, all kinds of things that people have done. What's so special about what you've done? So what we've done is we've made a product that's universal where it can fit on the bike that you have now and the one that you're going to get in the future, where you'll see a lot of people actually inherit motor uh, throttle locks when they buy a motorcycle because it's year make model specific. And so, so again, that's coming from the practical side of my personality. I didn't want to have to buy a new throttle lock each time. (laughs) Also, it's thumb activated. So you're using a, a strong finger, your thumb to engage this thing. And, and you're not using your weakest uh, finger to, to engage it. Um, in addition, it's, it's a very strong component and it looks like it's a a factory piece. So it's not standing out, um, as some piece sitting on your grip. Um, yeah, it it, doesn't take up any grip space. It's not crowding you out. Yeah. It's not taking up any grip space, especially when you're riding with gloves. Um, the other thing too, and I've, I've talked with other writers about this, but I've, um, when you're riding and you get into some rutted out single track and you have a bar end style throttle lock, you can engage those on accident. And it's a huge surprise when you do, um, you're, you're not going to accidentally engage our throttle lock. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of, oh, one other thing too, is when you turn our throttle lock on, you can change your speed so you can accelerate and decelerate while it's on. And then it'll maintain that, that spot where the throttle is. Where a lot of other throttle locks, you have to um, turn off the throttle lock and then change your speed and then engage it again. Yeah, so there's a lot of resetting and tinkering, whereas ours is when it's engaged, it's not actually locked. Like you can just manually override it and it feels like you're riding without a return spring. So you're kind of just riding in like a manual mode. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty neat because if anybody's used a throttle lock before, you come to a hill, the bike slows down, you're going to have to disengage. Or or I think I told you the one that I have is a plastic one, the one that clips onto it. There's There's a lot of problems with that one. It's very, very rudimentary, but it allows you at least in one direction to decrease your throttle, but to... To increase your throttle, you've got to hold it with your thumb and push it back up. Uh, the other problems with that is because you mentioned uh, about space. I thought that was only a thing with me. I have a. Pr- I, I end up taking this one off a lot because when I'm riding dirt, I don't want it there. It's taking up space yeah. and it's in my way. It also tends to catch. You know, if you put on uh, uh, riding muffs to keep your hands warm. Yep. There's oh, yeah. a lot of little issues with it because you. It's simple, but it just sort of gets in the way. But you, you, you said you got the idea. Um, you came up with this idea. You're, you're working with a mechanical engineer, um, just getting them to, to check your, your design and make sure everything makes sense. You mentioned you did a, you did a fundraiser for it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So before we did the Kickstarter, like after we came back from the trip, um, David started working on a prototype. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So, cause he was doing all the designs in Word. Yeah. So literally I was doing it on word with my left hand because my right hand had a cast on it. Um, But yeah, so we we made I learned how to use SketchUp, which is a Google uh, CAD software. I learned how to use it. It's free. And I learned how to use it from YouTube. (laughs) So just uh, figuring out how to do it. I I made um, some 3D versions of it. And then I know. But before getting those 3D prints, I took a a cutting board and a Dremel. And I made just this very simple throttle lock. And I was like, okay, proof of concept. This does work. I'm not just crazy. And, and then I started doing 3d prints of it. I did three of them because each one cost $50. And, so, and that was a stretch. And that was a stretch. <laughs> and then after I had, uh, a design that I liked, I reached out to a bunch of different manufacturers in the area and, 
everybody was quoting me about four and a half thousand dollars for the first prototype. And I'm thinking, who is spending that much money on a prototype? <laughs> this is crazy. And so then I, I just kept reaching further and further east in the US. We finally got a company in Virginia that said that they would do it, but it was three thousand dollars and it was the cheapest one that we found. For one. Three thousand dollars to make one. To wait make one prototype. To know if it would work. Yeah. And so Heidi and I we were looking at each other and we were like, what else are we going to do with our life? Like this, this could be awesome. And we could be in the motorcycle community, which is where we want to be. And we'd be making money there. And so we pulled the trigger and they said they'd deliver in six weeks. They delivered in six months. And once we got it, they said, we're not going to make any more of these things. <laughs> so I was like, oh no. It was that bad is, putting it together. It was, was that hard for them because so their intricate. tolerances were so tight. And, uh, and it was very intricate. And so I received that was CNC machines. Yeah, that was CNC'd. And so you have tight uh, radiuses that you have to work with. And anyway, so I had a working prototype and before I could bring it to market, I had to make sure that somebody else could make it. So I revisited some of the manufacturers here. One of them did laser cutting and I brought it in and his name's Rob. He's an incredible guy. And so I showed him the product. He's like, we could make this with sheets of metal stacked and riveted together. And I was like, you're a genius. Let's figure this out. And so he gave me a quote. They said that they needed $11,200 and they could make about uh, 200 or so of these units for that money. And I said, okay, uh, I'm going to go to Kickstarter, which is also a suggestion from him. We had been thinking about Kickstarter, but he kind of like pushed us over the edge and said, just do it. And so we did Kickstarter and that was an amazing decision because we got to have a free test group, a paying test group. And, uh, everybody wants to be part of a Kickstarter at that time, especially. And we got uh, really, really good SEO rank rankings for throttle lock whenever you searched on Google. Um, well, so and the whole idea was like, we knew it was a great idea and we knew it was better than what was already out there. And we but, wanted it. And we wanted it. We wanted it manufactured so we could have one. And so we we're like, well, if we want it, then other people probably want it too. And if Kickstarter's not successful, then the business wouldn't be a success yeah. because it's a picture of the market. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, okay, well, if it's not a success, then we can comfortably walk away from yeah. it and not worry about not it. Not waste any more brain cells on thinking about this thing but, if nobody wants but it. But how how do you end up how do you end up selling it? I mean, you got eleven thousand, you're talking two hundred units, you're talking fifty-five dollars each or something like that. How do you sell it to people? How do you how do you get them interested in it? Generate the interest. Yeah. So what we did was we've been a part of Horizons Unlimited since the beginning. Uh, we taught classes in Germany and we decided to go down to California, which is one of the, the larger HU meetings in the U.S. And we timed it with the launch of our Kickstarter. And so I also had uh, a forum thread on ADV Rider explaining the product and that we were launching a Kickstarter and I had a web page up, everything that I could think of to get the word out. So once we got to HU in California, we were teaching five classes. We were, uh, a couple of them we were doing multiple of, but we did round the world trip planning, nuts and bolts. We did, uh, packing light two up, and then we did a sleep anywhere class. And so after each one of these classes, we would tell them, this is what we're doing. This is the Kickstarter that's launched. And I would take these flyers that we created and I would put them everywhere above every urinal, like everywhere so <laughs> that people could marketing. see it. Yeah. Just guerrilla marketing. And then we got a lot of authors and other influential people in the motorcycle community on board to just make a post. And once we started getting some traction with the Kickstarter, I told Turatech that we uh, were launching this product. And so Turatech posted on their Facebook group and overnight we had 15 more orders and it was just moving and moving. So um, one unique thing about our Kickstarter was I said that we would we would fully refund everybody and pay for return shipping if it didn't fit on your motorcycle. And that I think really helped us, but it also was very stressful thinking that yeah. I might have to eat all this money if my idea does not work. So it was a, it was a big gamble for us. So the rest is history. You, you funded it to 150% or something. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We funded it enough so that we could have about 40 extra units and, from there, we just slowly grew our inventory. Slowly. Yeah, slowly. So we, <laughs> we had 40 extra units. Now we have, um, we, we place orders for like 1500 units 
So we were definitely past that part. And, um, and we, we were bootstrapping it. We can say that now because yeah. we're not doing that anymore. We have legitimate manufacturing, leg- everything's legit <laughs> and fulfillment and everything. But at that point, we didn't even have a garage, right? We couldn't say that we were a, a business started in a garage. We started in our living room. <laughs> we couldn't afford a garage. We, um, so I, we found out I was pregnant with our first like weeks before we launched the Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, so we're going through this whole process. I'm pregnant. We moved to San Diego in this time frame. And then I'm literally in the hospital, had just given birth mm-hmm. and David gets a call saying the parts have arrived. Yep. And so at our front door, at our front down the door, street. like all the parts were there. So they were ready to be assembled basically. And so David's like, well, uh, Heidi, are you okay? I have to go. <laughs> so David left me at the hospital. There was like 20 grand of raw material sitting on our front porch. Yeah. So it was just like a really busy, chaotic time yeah. just in general. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, David, yeah. you rush home and assemble these things yourself on the kitchen table? So I rushed home and inspected everything, found that there were problems and had to make some very uh, aggressive phone calls to get everything figured out. Uh, but yeah, we, we had them black oxide coated, laser etched, and then we started assembling Assembling. them probably about two weeks later. Yeah. So that was like a all hands on deck situation. Like I, uh, we had our kitchen table turned into our manufacturing center. (laughs) And so I, assembled every single throttle lock yeah. and then I passed, and I riveted them, them all. passed them over to David at the kitchen bar mm-hmm. and David would rivet them with our drill press that was in our kitchen. Yeah. And we would take photos of this stuff and just crack up thinking, what if people knew what we were doing? Would they really buy this? Like, this has never been shared before. Yeah, we, yeah, Jim, you're getting, yeah, we have never told this story before. It's just so, between us. It's just yeah. between us, I hope. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, we have photos of me like with, you know, a newborn in like a little front pouch, like carrier thing. And I'm just sitting at the kitchen table, just Put, putting throttle locks together, building throttle locks. Now, what has this done for your your adventurous side, as well as now you have two kids? It's, right. Yeah, that's it's, hard to it's say. It's the kids more that have kind of pumped the brakes, I feel like. Mm-hmm. But we, so we knew like, okay, we need to give this business time to grow. It's not fair to like assume it's going to happen so fast. And so I think that was part of the reason we moved down to San Diego too, was like, we need an adventure, but. I'm pregnant and we're starting a business and we need to be stationary. So let's go be stationary somewhere new and exciting. Mm -hmm. So when I was six months pregnant, like, and we were in manufacturing, we moved to San Diego. So that was kind of like our little adventure. But right now we're just waiting for, um, their little heads to fit inside a helmet legally so that we could take them on a (laughs) motorcycle. I want to go all the way up to Nordcap. I want to drive from uh, Germany all the way up there on sidecars with those girls. So, and I'm sure we'll get to that point. Uh, Well, and Africa's high on my list because we didn't make it there on our motorcycles. Yeah, that was in our plan. But Africa's surprisingly expensive, especially if you don't want to get malaria or get your head bitten off by a tiger or a lion. (laughs) Tigers aren't in Africa. Okay. (laughs) Well, the things that you've mentioned that you've done talks on, one was packing mm-hmm. light, one was sleeping anywhere. Can you give us some tips on, on that to, uh, to wrap things up? Oh, yeah, for sure. So <laughs> This is what we geek out on. <laughs> yeah, this is the stuff we like. Well, packing light. Let's look at packing light. Okay, okay. we'll start with packing light. So we have some photos, they're, they're on the internet somewhere, of our bike and the luggage, and that's two up. We have nothing compared to some of the motorcyclists that you see out there. And that's because either we're not as hardcore as they are or <laughs> we couldn't afford as many things as they have. Uh, but what our what our priority was, was to uh, be light. And again, no ball and chain. So what we did was we bought the motorcycle and then we bought our luggage, the actual containers for our stuff. And what that did was it limited the amount of stuff we could bring and put in there and it limited the amount of money that we would spend on stuff. So, so we had really lightweight things and we had to multipurpose a lot of things. So if I'll run down the list of some multipurposed items, instead of having a really thick sleep, like sleeping pad, you can have a thin lightweight one, but on the ground, lay your motorcycle gear down and then put your pad on top and that insulates it. Uh, another thing is you need to layer 
you you want to layer your your nice merino wool base layer with a t-shirt over it and then a button up and then your down coat and then your motorcycle jacket so instead of having one big item with you or like a bulky fleece or something yeah or things like we would have uh, you know the laundry soap that's really rough and gritty we would take that with us instead of actual soap to do your laundry because one the the liquid soap can spill and get all over your stuff but the gritty stuff can actually clean the grease right off of your hands after working on your motorcycle and you could use it with your down coat when you're washing your laundry um Another thing is we had a big roll duffel bag from Ortlib that was waterproof and it was a, a, a yellow one. But what we would do is we'd take all of our stuff out of there, kind of wipe it down. Then we'd throw our dirty clothes, some water and some soap in there, wrap it up, let it sit in the sun and roll it around and wash our clothes that way. Um, we also had, if, if anybody's familiar with the MacBook, they have these little white bricks for charging. And there's this little prong there that you can pull out of that white brick. And that little prong has a universal tip on the end. And you can take all of your camera chargers and a bunch of other things and plug it into that universal tip and plug it right into the wall to charge. So you're saving on a lot of space with the different cables that you'd have to bring around with you. Um, well, and one of the major packing light things is like your clothes and like what you're wearing. So like we originally left and David had like a pair of Birkenstocks and mm -hmm. I had a pair of sandals and the Birkenstocks. I mean, those take up so much space in a side case. And like, you can't shower with them. They're not yeah. really multipurpose. So we, sh we ended up shipping a ton of stuff home, but like for clothing, we each had a 10 liter stuff sack, which is really small. It's like the size of a compact sleeping bag, like a really yeah. compact sleeping bag, the stuff sack. And we, that was where we put our clothes. So David jokes that he told me I could bring anything I wanted as long as it fit in this tiny bag. <laughs> and I was, I was like traumatized when I saw it because I just had no idea how I was going to do that. But we literally brought like one pair of pants, shorts, a skirt, three shirts, a yeah. long sleeve and like that was it. And to pack up super light and tight with those things, you you lay out your pants flat, then you roll up everything else into little burritos and then put it onto the end of your pants and roll all that into one large burrito and then stuff it into the <laughs> stuff sack. That's how you can maximize your space. So we didn't bring very much, but we packed it like a like a Tetris game. So like the thing that was frustrating for us was like, oh, when you're tearing down camp and you're like trying to get on the road, you'd like eat breakfast, wash your dishes, brush your teeth, then start packing up. And then by the time you're packed up, you're hungry for lunch because it takes three hours. <laughs> but we learned that that's not unique to us. And that made us feel a lot yeah. better. Like that's just life on the road. Like it just takes time. Yeah. And we also multipurposed our clothes. So we would have we wouldn't bring the motorcycle Gore-Tex uh, liner for your jacket and your pants, we would bring our own jackets, really lightweight waterproof jackets so that we could wear it around town and not look like some alien walking around. Um, and then we also had these Ortlib 20 liter roll top bags that we had put on top of our Turtec boxes. And those would fluctuate depending on whether we wanted firewood or extra food from the grocery store. And whenever we were away from our motorcycle, we would carry those around like backpacks. And we also, we left with motorcycle boots, like nice, legit leather motorcycle boots. But we were thinking, oh, we'll be able to walk around in them. Like on a cold day, we could just wear these as our boots and our waterproof shoes. And they're, they just were not comfortable for walking in. And we knew we were going to do this Everest base camp trek. And we realized we weren't going to do it in motorcycle boots. And so we ended up buying just really nice like hiking boots mm -hmm. with, you know, ankle support and all that. And so then we ended up shipping the motorcycle boots home and just using our hiking boots as our riding boots because it just made so much more and, sense. And we are all about safety on the motorcycle, but you have to weigh the difference between being bulky and safe with some motorcycle boots or being really agile and nimble with some hiking boots. And that's the choice we made was to be more, more nimble on the motorcycle to hopefully avoid the wrecks instead of be able to slide through them. Well, I think the reason we do the, the overpacking thing for most people is because it's fear-based. We're worried that for some reason we're going to need something and somehow there's not going to be anywhere to get it, like a yeah. jacket. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah, I only brought a couple shirts and a pair of pants and I hated them within a couple weeks, but like it doesn't matter because I was in New Zealand and I was somewhere cool and who cares if my pants look ridiculous and they're all stretched <laughs> out because I keep hand washing them. And, and then, you know, we got to Malaysia and I just took all my clothes and I threw them in a dumpster and it was like <laughs> a party. Like I was so excited and I just went to the mall and I bought like really cheap clothes and I was like, cool, these are going to be my next clothes. And then I think I did the same thing again in Switzerland. Yeah. We, we put a dumpster fire with all your clown clothes. <laughs> I <laughs> wanted to catch on. them on fire. <laughs> What about sleep on anywhere? What what are you telling people when it comes to sleep anywhere? What does that mean? So sleeping anywhere, it's, it's a matter of being comfortable and not paranoid. I think a lot of people are really paranoid when they're traveling, they're sleeping in a tent in an abandoned campground in the middle of Czech Republic and there's chestnuts falling on your tree and all over the place (laughs) or on your tent tent and and all over you, all over the place. Um, but you know, you got to think not, it's like this child mentality of everybody knows where I am and what I'm doing and all of my weaknesses, uh, when you're sleeping, you know, in, in a random awkward place. But the reality of it is people have their own life story about, don't really and they don't really care about you. And, um, the other thing is try to get into either through horizons unlimited connections or with couch surfer, get out there and stay with people that you don't know. They, they do have really good ways of keeping you up to date on, on creepy people with a uh, couch surfer. Um, but, but yeah, get out there and, and have some awkward encounters <laughs> with people. It's fun and you remember it and you know, you are a, what, like an ambassador yeah. right? for, for the, I wouldn't just say the U.S. because you're in Canada, but you're you're an ambassador for your country. For, yeah, for your country. But yeah, we so we did a mix. Like like I said, we were fully self sustained, so we had our tent and all of our gear. And so in cheaper or in more developed countries, I should say, we typically camped because it was cheaper. But then we got into like India, and it just felt sketchy. And it was just so hot. We were there at the worst time where it was like over a hundred degrees every day. So there's no way we want to climb into a tent and there's not even really campgrounds. So, but for $30, you could get a beautiful hotel with room service. And, you know, so we just stayed in hotels mostly like in India. Um, but then in Nepal, we stayed with a family who we met through an organization that we knew and just reached out to. And so we stayed in their home for a few weeks. And like in Sydney, like David said, with his surgery, we reached out to the riding community and stayed with that couple for three weeks. And yeah, three weeks was a little too long to stay with a stranger, but like it was an an incredible experience. And then we did a ton of couch surfing in Europe and Mm -hmm. met a ton of people and got invited to different events or different trips, like side trips. And yeah. And one thing we recommend too is, well, I I guess there's two things. First is when you're showing up to a new country, say you're flying in to get your motorcycle, always book at least one or two nights and look at what holidays are coming up in that region to see if you need to book out an entire week in that area while you get your feet under you. Uh, But beyond one or two nights, I think we would say, don't worry about it. Like, yeah. don't, don't look any further, like come four o'clock, start figuring out where you're going to sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the other thing is when we were couch surfing, we would limit it to t- two nights per place because you're, you're still on that up, upswing of excitement under two nights, but past that you're just kind of another guest and it might, you might not feel as, as wanted there past that mm-hmm. time. That, that's so a good yeah. point. I was, I was going to ask about the three week thing. Like what are you doing as far as the three week thing? Are, are you, do you compensate them or anything? And it's an awful long time to stay with someone. How do you work that yeah. out? So what we typically do is buy groceries. We make food. Uh, we'll, we'll make breakfast for them. We're always doing the dishes. We're, we're trying to clean things up, you know, as we see them. So and trying to, you know, get like, we would leave and be gone all day and take the train into town because David had space. his surgery. So we didn't have a motorcycle, but we're, you know, we're going to go off and do our own thing. And then we'll come back with dinner makings and make you dinner or, you know, and they had fun, like, um, the husband like was a chef. And so he had a lot of fun like cooking for us. Um, but so, yeah. you just kind of like, you offer what you can and, 
and they're enjoying offering what they can because they want to show us around and we met their friends and then we'd go out and do things with their friends. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so we would always cook Swedish pancakes in the morning or we would cook chicken parmigiana for dinner or Mexican food. Yeah. Mexican food. That was a huge one. Right. Cause we'd, we'd make homemade tortillas and carne asada and give, and try to make guacamole with what they had (laughs) and give them as best of a authentic Mexican meal as we could. And they loved it. Yeah. I mean, not just them, a lot of people. Space, I think, is is really important. You mentioned about going out for the day and giving them their space. That that has to account for a lot because I think if you're laying around on their couch all day or you're or you're sitting on their back porch all day, they go to work and come back and you're still there. That yeah. could probably get a little bit much. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah, and some people do that. I've had a friend who had another traveler stay with him, and the guy was just in his room all the time. He didn't want to interact with his host. He wasn't telling stories to his host about the trip and getting the other person excited. Because a lot of the times, people, when they're hosting you, want to hear your stories. They want to get your excitement and and get ideas. And that's why they're hosting. Yeah, that's why they're. It's it's such a cool thing to to even be able to host. Those people are awesome. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you should you should see it that way. Just before we wrap things up, talk about awkward people. <laughs> give, give, give us a give us a story. Okay, uh, so which one are you thinking of? <laughs> or two, yeah. or two. Right? <laughs> so there was this one guy in Budapest, and he. I don't want to be too hard on him, though. I mean, he, I doubt he's listening. To I this know, idea. no, Come I on. know, but it was just it was awkward because he had posted a profile on Couchsurfer. It seemed appealing. It was close to the city center. Again. In Budapest, we were kind of just looking for a place to stay, to see the sights, and we were going to be there for a couple of days and then move on. And, you know, so his home was in an ideal location, and it sounded like he had hosted multiple people before, but we show up, and I don't... I, Okay, the power worked, but like the fridge didn't work. The fridge wasn't plugged in <laughs> yeah. because it was too expensive. Yeah, and, and I think he inherited food. this house or yeah. uh, this condo. And, and I think it was... Um, like government housing kind of. Yeah. So he, he had this place, he, he wouldn't run really any, any appliances and he had no food. And so yeah, was, what he was anticipating was that we would come with food and feed him the whole time. And then after we were there, he would have another person show up and feed him. And so he had like a twin bed in his living room and then he had a kitchen and a bathroom. So it was like kind of like a studio and so he offered to sleep on the floor in the kitchen. Yeah. I slept on his twin bed. And no, I, think, I, I don't think I took him up on that. Yeah, I think I slept on the floor creepy. with you. It was too weird. So we slept on the floor in his studio. He slept on the floor in the kitchen. And it was just like, I just felt bad for him because we realized immediately like he needed us. Yeah. Like he, he needed support and he was going to the couch surfing community for support. And we just weren't mentally or, you know, we weren't prepared for that in any way. You know, he offered us tea and we're like, oh, sure, we'll have some tea. And then he starts like grating some ginger and puts it in hot water because he doesn't have any tea bags. Yeah. And which is delicious. I love ginger tea. But again, we appreciate people who are hosting. We're not knocking this guy at all. But it was uncomfortable and it wasn't (laughs) what we were expecting. And so we spent the day with him and we gave him some food and then we left. Yeah, we gave him what we had and then we left. And there, there's one other awkward one that I could tell you. We we were down in another country where they speak English and this guy found us and said, well, what are you guys doing? We said, we're driving around around the world. And he goes, OK, uh, you want to stay with me? And I'm like, sure. And so we go over to his house. His house has a, a mix of uh, male and female roommates. And so we're, we're hanging out there and, and we're talking with him. And then this girl storms in to the living room and starts screaming at him about posting up, I don't know, photos of her bra that was hanging in the laundry room. <laughs> and she was screaming in his face and we're just, we just met this guy and yeah, we're, we're sitting like, there. Why do we not know about him? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So like, we need to get out of here, man. No, it turns out he was really, really nice. Yeah, he's but. a super cool guy. And it was just one of those awkward, just, you know, early 20s making a bad decision. Right. We but it like, makes you feel like you want to turn and run. Right. Yeah. We're sitting in the living room like, are we sitting with the wrong guy? Like, <laughs> Those are the outliers, though. Most people are so cool. You show up and they make you the best Greek food or Turkish food or whatever that you've ever had in your life. 
And yeah, yeah we, we have relationships still with those people. Yeah. David, Heidi, thank you very much. Great to talk. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, yes, likewise, Jim. Thank thanks you. so much. Wow, what a great story from David and Heidi Winters. Now, the throttle lock they're talking about is called the Atlas Throttle Lock, and their website is atlasthrottlelock.com. And, of course, that link will be in the show notes, as always, as well as um, a bunch of photographs we got from them as well. If you want to see some photos from their trip, drop by our website and look at the show notes for this episode. Please don't feed me because I know what I want. Please deliver me that soft part of your soul that makes you freeze time. Staring in at yourself, it's time to step outside onto the path you once made. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And MotoBreeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. What a cool story, don't you think? David and Heidi Winters, uh, I thought that was just great. You know, you've got uh, you've got a lifelong love affair. You've got motorcycle adventure in there, um, the starting of a business, having kids. I mean, uh, the whole thing, just pretty cool. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening. Really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did making it. A special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. And obviously, thank you for listening. You're a big part of this. You're everything to us. <laughs> Hey, if you like what we're doing, you want to help us out, drop by our website, click on the support button. We get all kinds of ways to, to kick back something at you for your support, but mainly like we just need you to support the show. So drop by www.adventureriderradio.com forward slash support. My name is Jim Martin. See you next week. This is ADV woman Pat Jakes, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. 